Hi everybody. Do you ever wonder when we're here on retreat like this, what we're doing here? You know, and it's probably a multi-leveled question. You know, there's probably a little bit of like, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> and a little bit of like, well, how did I get here? Or, and what are we, what are we doing here? <clears throat> and I thought I'd begin with one of uh, a quote from the Laka, Lankavatara Sutra, <clears throat> where they say things things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. And it's a little, it's one of the ways Buddhism begins to point at what's here. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. <clears throat> and I, I like the quote very much because it points at part of the paradox of the Dharma and the paradox of reality. Because things are like totally exactly what they are, but they're not just exactly what they are. <clears throat> and there's more to, there's life as we know it, and there's more to life as we know it. There's more to discover, more to understand, more to, in Buddhist language, to realize or to illuminate, or to wake up to. And the, both the ordinary and the extraordinary is sitting right here. <clears throat> and it's part of practice in general. And it's also very, I believe, becomes more pronounced as we age a little bit. And we get to live a lot, a lot of ordinary reality, ordinary life, you know, everyday life, up and down, good and bad, you know, we like it, we don't like it, all that. And yet there's something else here that we also know that's not just about ordinary life. And it can manifest in ordinary life at any time but then there's a lot of time when, no, no, it's just ordinary life. And then sometimes it's only a moment or a while or a period of time. But then there's also the extra, extraordinary begins to reveal itself. And it reveals itself in life. And it begins to reveal itself as we age. Because we have a lot of experience of the ordinary and yet the extraordinary keeps showing us something, keeps revealing something. It's not quite the word I want. I'll say it. It keeps bugging us or it keeps tapping us on the shoulder or the head or somewhere and says, don't, it's not only the ordinary, 
It's the ordinary and the extraordinary that's here. <clears throat> and so the, what we're doing here is looking at reality. We're looking at the Dharma, right? Or discovering the Dharma. That's a very classical way to say it. Dharma means truth. We're looking at the truth. Or we're, we're seeing how the Dharma, the truth, is illuminated with some very basic practices of being present and aware and awake moment by moment by moment. So, and, and of course, we're being aware and awake in the most ordinary situations, right? I mean, it, it gets very basic in Buddhism, or very, a better way to say it, it gets very simple, right? Uh, we're not doing anything much, right? Everybody got that? Right? We're sitting, we're walking, we're eating, we're stretching, teeny bit of talking happens, having some food, going to the bathroom, sleeping. That's the whole deal here, as far as I can tell, in terms of practice, right? Totally simple human life. And the reason we, we, we go that the simplicity is part of practice is because the simplicity reveals more of what's here. The complexity sometimes doesn't always have to, but the complexity can obscure the Dharma or the truth of the way things are, of what's sitting right here in our seat. And so just being, all we're asking, all we're asked to do is to be with our direct experience and be aware of it. And basically to be kind, kind while it's happening and see what happens as we start to let our awareness know what it's aware of. Right? Because awareness is happening basically all the time. This is here, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little Eugene definition here. The Eugene definition is there's small A awareness and there's big A awareness. And we wanna play with both of them in practice. So the small A awareness, it's happening all the time. Right? Anybody not aware right now? Right? Anybody, please raise your hand if you're not aware. <laughs> right, that's a paradoxical question. <laughs> so, so, right, every, we're all aware. It's so common, it's so ordinary, we don't pay attention to the awareness. We, and we, so first, as part of practice, we want to pay attention to what are we aware of, right? And so it's very, again, it's pretty common, simple, body, heart, and mind is one way to say it. Or the, you know, mindfulness of the body, awareness of the Vedana, the feelings, feeling tone of experience, aware of the mind, heart, right? And aware of the Dharma, of the way things are, of the way the Dharma understands, sees things. And that's, you know, that's all we're doing here, right? 
moment by moment by moment. And the moment by moment gets important because it also is pointing at something simple, like just this moment experience. Not every moment. No, this moment. And then this moment. And it starts to align us with reality, which is happening every moment. Sometimes I see this, they say, some spiritual teachers, whatever those are, they say that um, now, one of the key things about now is now is eternal. There's only now, right? There's only now. We have memories of past, we have ideas about the future, we get very involved in past and future, but all, but even that is happening in the now. And so what we're, what we're starting to do is begin to align our heart and mind and body with now, with the reality that's sitting here, feeling whatever it's feeling, thinking whatever it's thinking, only we're being aware of it. We're being aware of the now that's sitting right here. We're being aware of the fact that we're thinking or we're having a feeling, or there's a mood, or there's different sensations in the body, or, or that it's pleasant, or that it's unpleasant, or we like it, or we don't like it. And we're being aware of that, aware of that, aware. And slowly, the space of awareness, things start to center in, in being known in this very simple way. So we're using what's called in Buddhism the Satipatthana teaching, which is Satipatthana is the f- either translated as the four foundations of mindfulness, or I believe a more accurate translation is the four foundations of awareness. Because it's not just the mind that knows. The whole being starts to be aware not just the mind, the body knows, the heart knows, the mind knows, and even bigger than body, heart, and mind, the awareness is knowing itself and what is being known. And so we've been, we started by, Anna was talking about the heavenly messengers, and it was, was, I thought this was funny, maybe you'll think so too, but but I, I wrote it down. I started to write, including heavenly mess, you know, instead of the heavenly, because it's talking about sickness, old age, death, right? The heavenly mess. That is just, oddly enough, a normal part of human reality, right? It's not a big mistake. Any living being goes through sickness, old age, death. That's just the way it works. And so we started by just beginning again to align with the ordinary, normal human reality that also the Buddha went through. In addition, this other piece that I mentioned, which we could call the extraordinary. So there was sickness, old age, death, and then somebody who had a sense of reality that was not bound by sickness, old age, and death. That in the text they say a mendicant, a, a practitioner that the Buddha saw. And the Buddha knew, oh, that's the way. That's what I want. That's what I'm interested in. That's where I'm going. 
And he didn't say, oh, I shouldn't want anything because I'm a Buddhist. I love this about the Buddha. The Buddha wanted what he wanted, and he pursued it because it was a very pure-hearted wanting of the truth. And I believe that pure-heartedness is sitting here in every seat in some form or another, or, or you wouldn't be here, right? This is what brings people here, is some knowing whether it's conscious or unconscious, whether it's, it's clear or it's intuitive, oh, there's more to reality, and, and I am part of that. That is part of what's possible for each of us, is to keep discovering more or illuminating more of what is sitting in our seat. And then, and of course, and Ruth went on to talk about the preciousness of human birth, the preciousness of this opportunity, which the Buddha understood and Ruth understood, which is why she talks about it. And, and then going from there, starting to look at, oh, what, it, what is it to have an insight? What is it to begin to awaken? What does that mean? Because we have a lot of ideas. And believe me, I have a lot of Buddhist statues. <laughs> Trust me on this. It's <laughs> My friend Marianne is in the back. She's shaking her hand because she sold me a bunch of them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, 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 but we're not statues. And so what I'm pointing at here is we project a lot of ideas oh, insight looks like this, like, right? We end up like this or like this. And it does, but it's not a statue. And so part of what can happen for us is the projection of the ideal, which the statues represent, often distances us from our own direct experience and waking up. Because what these statues are are pointing at is you, me, us, each of us. It's, it's about you, human potential, the potential of human beings. And I don't care what age, really, I don't care what age you are or what, what any other lineage you have, age, sex, gender, you know, race, religion, culture, ethnicity, you know, things that I don't even know to say, right? What the Buddha discovered is sitting here. And that's why the Buddha's teaching is alive for 2,600 years, because human beings have responded, resonated to what happened to that young man some 2,700 years ago who lived in northern India in a whole different time and place and culture and economic system. None of that stuff stopped what he understood from living right now, right here. And so we get even the paradox of time and space starts to lose its rigidity just because here we are really with the Buddha. And I don't mean me, I mean the Buddha's teaching is alive right here, right now. It's not just alive. 2,600 years ago. <clears throat> so the, that, 
And, and when Ruth talked about the insight, the insight, and, you, and I, want, I want to encourage all of us to see for ourselves, but the insight is a change in perspective. It's a shift of understanding of what's actually here, what's true. And here's the tricky part for human beings. We want it to be one thing. Okay, give me my goodies. I'll pay. I'll pay whatever spirit rock charges, and I'll pay however, whatever kind of pain in the butt it is to sit and walk and do all that stuff. But I want that one goodie called awakening. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Meaning it's not one thing. It's a living awakening that the Buddha pointing at. He didn't point at, oh, you get this one thing and you're done. No, you get this one thing and that's the beginning of more, of more understanding, of more awakening, of more intelligence, of more compassion, of more who knows what. Because if you really read the text, the Buddha didn't know everything when he was enlightened and he was totally enlightened and more kept happening for him. Beautiful to actually read and, and see his humanness continue and this is my word now, his humanness continue to mature. And personally, that's my favorite word for awakening this, these days, which is maturity. Because it's not, because there's the conventional mature, maturity and then there's the unconventional maturity. Because you're all mature people. And we're, we are all mature people. And there's more maturity possible. And we know that. <clears throat> so part of what we're pointing at here, that practice is like life. It's paradoxical. It's a paradoxical reality. It's a paradoxical practice. Right? <coughs> I mean, really, if it was not paradoxical, then it's very simple. Just do it. Sit down, be mindful for, you know, seven days. And, and the Buddha said, if you stay mindful for seven days, you know, don't miss a beat, you'll get enlightened. So just do it. But we can't do it, which is part of the paradox of awakening. Or the paradox that we, we have our part, but we don't have control, which is one of the pieces that came up in the groups today, maybe yesterday too, but definitely today, that we talked about a little, which is control. Our understanding of being in control, or really our, our understanding of, oh, we're not in control, becomes clearer as we age. Because at certain times when we're younger, we think we have a lot of control over life, right? We can do it, or we do things, and we're successful or good things happen or we get the job we want or the 
person we want or the this we want or the that. And we think, oh yeah, I'm, I can. And then we start to age a little and you think, my body's not doing what I want it to do. Have you all noticed that? <laughs> like, like that's just normal, right? Or have you also noticed your mind doesn't do what you want it to do? Hey, thank you, really, because that's also very normal. And have you noticed reality doesn't do what we want it to do? It just does reality. And so, and so the practice is not something we just do. It's something we start to have a relationship with. We start to give ourselves to the Dharma. We start to align with the principles which support awakening. <clears throat> and it's if we could if we could just do it, it wouldn't be liberating. Right? Because the liberation is something bigger than something we can do. There's, you know, there's beautiful paradoxical pointing at what the Dharma is pointing at. There's a beautiful line from T.S. Eliot. He said, teach us to care. Teach us to care and not to care. Now there's the Dharma. Teach us to care and not to care. That's paradoxical. That's not something we can just do. That's something we discover about reality. That we both care and also there's something in us that doesn't care. And I don't mean doesn't care in a negative way. Is not bound to what it cares about. That we love reality or love people or love things and we're not bound to people, things, reality. It's all just happening on its own, paradoxically. Meaning it's just the paradox that the whole thing is happening, right? As far as, far as I can tell. And so one of the, when I say that we can't do it, it's because the Dharma reveals one of the impediments to the Dharma, which is the usual sense of self, where we feel like, oh, we can do whatever we want, or we can do everything, or we can do anything. And then we start to see that's not actually true. <clears throat> and so from one of my great teachers, Ryokan, who was a Japanese monk and poet, who lived about 300, 350 years ago. He said, the Buddha is your mind. The Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. The Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north, when you want to go south, how will you arrive? So beautiful, beautiful teaching from Ryokan. Beautiful expression of his understanding 
of his awakening. And it's paradoxical because reality is paradoxical. <clears throat> and oh yeah, somewhere I even put what, what does paradox mean? Because I look things up because I don't know too much sometimes. Sometimes I think I know a lot, but then it's good to look in the dictionary and see what the hell does this word really mean? Paradox is a statement that seems self-contradictory uh, or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. And that's what we're doing, is we're learning to get a little more comfortable in this paradoxical world of being a human being. And one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, he said, paradox means the mind doesn't get it. Right? There's something we know, we know there's something, but we don't get, we don't get it in the logical way. Right? But we get it in our heart or our soul or our being, capital B being. And, and we know something's true. And so many of the teachers that I appreciate know something about that. Um, one of the people who I love is John Cage. How many people know who John Cage is? Great, few people. So John Cage was a musician and I don't even know how to describe him. He once, my favorite piece of John Cage, I think I've got the name of it right, is four minutes, 33 seconds, right? So he did a piece and he performed somewhere and got totally booed when he performed it the first time, totally booed, because it was four minutes and 33 seconds, and the guy got up to the piano and put the sheets of music that John wrote the, the music on, on the piano, and the guy sat there for four minutes and 33 seconds. And so the audience was furious. But John was teaching them something about the music of reality that's here at any moment. Because there's all kinds of sound happening all the time. Even the sound of silence is a sound. And so, anyhow, so he, John Cage once said, <laughs> that was all just off my head, that was not in my talk. Um, John Cage once said, he said, I am trying to be, become unfamiliar with what I am doing. I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I am doing. And this is a beautiful understanding of the teachings that have to do with both knowing and not knowing, which also came up, I think, in this room today about not knowing. And it's an important part of practice that I believe for us to get a little more comfortable or relaxed with both what we know and what we don't know, or not just what we know and don't know, but with the human phenomena of knowing as an experience and the, and the experience of not knowing, the state of consciousness where there's not knowing, right? And I say this often in San Francisco Insight, let's see if I can remember it, but I think I can. Um, Chris, Krishnamurti, he wrote a book called Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. Krishnamurti was a teacher in the last century and 
highly respected. He was actually picked to be the next incarnation, right, at some point. And, and yeah, and, and he lived for a while doing what people picked him for. And then he rebelled against that because he saw it wasn't the truth. And he just taught uh, in his own way, Krishnamurti. And he wrote a book called Freedom from the Known, which I loved because I knew enough to not read it. <laughs> the title had the whole thing in the title, right? I, I didn't want to know what he said about it. I got it, right? Oh, freedom from the known. And so, and I'm pointing at this because all of us, and I'm including myself, we all want to know what the hell's going on or what's true or what's real. And so we're often not so comfortable with the unknown and the unknowing state of heart and mind that may be here. And so I'm saying it partly to start to recognize it when it's here and maybe give it a little more pause is the word that Ruth was using, um, pausing and paying, being aware of the unknowing that's here. <clears throat> this is from Alan Watts. He said, irrevocable commitment to any religion, irrevocable commitment to any religion is not only intellectual suicide, it is positive unfaith because it closes the mind to any new vision of the world, of, I would say, of reality. Faith is, and this is Alan saying it, faith is above all openness, an act of trust in the unknown. And so part of what we're doing here in this very simple way, doing this very ordinary life, is start, starting to trust the unknown, which will reveal itself right in our own direct, immediate, simple, ordinary experience or it can reveal itself. And, you know, there's many different paradoxical parts of what we're doing, which is, one is we're being very conscious and we're also starting to become aware of our unconsciousness. And one of the things that came up in my groups was ageism. I'm going to say that again. One of the things that came up in my group was ageism, was the prejudice against old people, right? You, any of you notice that, right? There's, there's a certain way old people, older people, are thought about, perceived, related to, that has nothing to do with reality, that is all based on an idea, based on how you look and your body and things like that and your energy. But there, and it's the same in, of course, any kind of racism, sexism, genderism, right? Whatever, whatever kind of prejudice that you may have depending on your unique circumstances and situations or whatever kind of prejudice that you carry that you're unconscious of towards people who are old or young or 
black or white or red or gay or straight or whatever it might be because we all have it and we want and we don't want to deny it we want to start to be aware of it because the awareness is the beginning of the freedom from it the denying it it just keeps it all locked into place and so one of the beauties of this kind of practice that we're doing is that reality reveals reality. That's a Eugene line, very Eugene. Meaning that's where we discover the truth. And we discover more of reality by starting with the surface, even the deluded parts of reality, even with the unconscious parts of reality, because then they're not so solid. We don't just believe, you know, our, our uh, prejudice about old people. And, and I'm saying it like we all have it, because actually I believe we all have some, right? We all have looked, no, I don't know if we all, let me be more respectful. Many of us have looked around and thought, wow, what am I doing with all these old people on retreat here? You know, because it's not how we think of ourselves because it's a paradox. We're old people and we're not old people. They're both true. That's, and here I'm pointing at a paradox that's talked about in Buddhism as the two truths that there's conventional reality, like, well, yeah, I'm an old guy now. I'm, you know, I have enough age and all that stuff. But is that who I am? No. Yes and no. But one doesn't negate the other, right? The old doesn't negate the I'm not old. Um, that's not me at all. And the not me at all, the non-self, doesn't negate the self. Yeah, I'm old, right? And I could, of course, talk about other things. About I could say, oh yeah, I'm I'm a man, right? And I'm not a man. They're both true, but the the two truths don't negate each other. That's the paradox. Or yeah, and I could give more examples, but I think you get the idea, or I hope you get the idea or at least get curious about the idea. <laughs> and so part of what we're also looking at here is the wisdom of aging. And we did a little reflection yesterday about age, right? Do you, you know, or, or no, we did the reflection I'm thinking of about uh, time, right? If you have a year to live or a half a year to live or three months to live, right? Because all of that will happen, we just don't usually know it ahead of time, right? And the blessing of doing a reflection is you can play with it because you don't know. It may be one year from now, we'll all be gone. That's possible. Or six months, or three months, or a month. We don't know. And so one of the things that happens with age that can be helpful <clears throat> is we've lived a lot of normal, ordinary, everyday life, right? You all remember, anybody remember being 20? Anybody? 
<laughs> really, maybe I should ask it this way. How many people can't remember being 20, right? <laughs> you know, or remember being 30 or 40, right? Right, because that's all gone, right? Everybody clear about that? That's, that is gone. And yet it was totally real, totally real and gone. And both are true. Both are true. And so something happens as we begin to live with the paradox and the truth of impermanence and of aging. And one of the things that I believe happens is we start to see things, our perspective changes with age. And it's talked about classically, and when I say classically, I don't mean Buddhist classically, I mean just generally class, as the wisdom of aging, right? They say, oh, at least traditionally in most cultures, really, as far as I know, around the world, for a long time, old people were respected because they had more wisdom. That was very common. That doesn't happen in this culture so much. Or in, maybe I should say it more precisely, especially in the greater American um, Western culture, right? Old people aren't so respected as we know. But in many cultures, people are tremendously respected who are older because they've lived life. And there's a quality of heart and mind that can come with living life and with practice both that I think is part of what we hope for and what is also here to some degree. And the word in Sanskrit is upeksha, upeksha. And, uh, and it's, it's the word upeka in Pali, which we have an upeka building here even. Um, upeksha means, upa means over, and iksha means to look to overlook. And so upeka, upeksha, is the, is the original words, Pali and Sanskrit, for equanimity. And I think that's one of the wisdoms of aging, is we start to have some equanimity with life. Because we've been through it, right? I mean, anybody here not been through it? You know what I mean? Like been through ups and downs and right and wrong and good and bad and you know, like what the hell is this? And and yet you're here. And so it some and and it starts to give you a little bigger perspective on life. At least I, I feel that. Definitely a bigger perspective than I had when I was twenty or thirty or forty or fifty, because I'm done with that too. Um, <clears throat> so, so the upeka, upeksha, the overseeing reality is part of what happens for us as we age. We begin to find a seat of maturation that comes with being alive. And I don't mean we're totally free or totally mature. I'm not saying, but something comes that we, we begin to see. And, it, and we can call on it at times or recognize it might be even a better way to see it as it emerges in our experience. 
And that seed of maturation also can have patience and appreciation and recognizes impermanence as the way things are and recognizes change. Life changes. That's part of the deal, right? There's no, no getting around it. And, you know, younger, sometimes you think, oh, yeah, I can just do it and I'm going to make it happen and do what I want and that's it. And, you know, great when you can do it. But then you see, no, that is not how it always works. And so getting comfortable with the totality of life, of reality, of the paradox of life, of the... What was, I'm trying to think, what else did I say paradox meant? Something else? Hmm. Maybe I threw it down here. Paradox, right. The absurdity, self-contradictory or absurd and expresses a truth. That there's, there's these differences, these contradictory parts of life and we start to get a little more comfortable with it. Even, even when things, it's not like we want them to continue, but we learn how to live with, we find enough balance to live with it or work with it. <clears throat> and so there was something else I wanted to say. Oh, this is from uh, Ralph Walker. He said, Enlightened space, the place of unconditional love, cannot be achieved until and unless one is willing to be comfortable with paradox and confusion. And, and have you noticed paradox and confusion while you're here? Right? And mostly because we're not used to Resting in the simplicity of reality, of here, of this moment. And, and I'm not saying that so that your judging mind can come in and say there's something wrong with you. It's not. It, we're not taught this. And it's one of the beautiful things about Buddhism is that we're being taught that it's a training. It's a teaching. A teaching of how to become intimate with experiential reality. And that's the reality, I don't care what age you are, that's here, experiential reality. If you're alive, there's the experience you're having, a body, heart, mind. And so the intimacy reveals, as we know, and I've mentioned, the anicca, or the impermanence of reality, right? Even sitting here, how many times has your experience changed since you've been here? Anybody have a number? How, how, here, let me say it this way. How many thoughts have you had while you were here? Right? One? Seven? You know, it's, or how many sensations, or how many feelings, or how many decisions did you come to already? You know, that you didn't follow. Like, I'm going to leave, or... Or I'm going to stay here forever. This is the best. And you know, maybe you will. So we start to discover the truth and power of what's called the three characteristics in Buddhism. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Of impermanence, 
of suffering or dissatisfaction, and anatta, not-self, the not-self reality, the not-self component of reality. And these three characteristics start to help us not take things for granted. And it's really, impermanence is just one of the best that way. We're not going to be here forever. That starts to get more real. And so let me really be real here. Let me really see what's true here. Let me actually give myself to life in the way I want to give myself or do what I want to do, whatever it is. You know, wake up or love people or fix the world, you know, in some way, shape, or form, whether it's about, you know, war or prejudice or racism or hatred or, or the inequity of the economic system or whatever it might be that moves you, right? And it doesn't mean you're going to do it all, but you can find what moves you, what touches you, and see what happens as you let that live in your life. <clears throat> so anicca, dukkha, right? Suffering, it's all over the place, right? It's everywhere. It's here in the room, right? It's one of the both humbling and... Um, maybe that's a good enough word, humbling parts of being in the role that I'm in, right? That when you meet people, and I've met a lot of people on retreat and practice, and for, you know, some 25 years I've been in this role, um, and everybody has dukkha. Everybody, rich, poor, black, white, green, red, purple, doesn't matter what the what the definitions are, they matter. But whether you're rich or poor, I mean, you know, it's dukkha. Meaning, and then I'm not saying that's all it is, but it humbles one's idea of difference. You start to see, oh, we're all here together on a certain level. And one of those levels is dukkha, is suffering that human beings, this whole world, suffer and seek freedom and happiness. And that's normal, as far as I can tell. And I was reading something my friend Gina Sharp wrote. Gina's a teacher in New York and beautiful woman. She said, you don't know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. You don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And this is part of the dukkha we all face that people we care for, love, will die. And there's nothing we can do about that. 
And finally, she says, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it. You just sit in the middle of it. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of practice. That's the moment when you really understand the power of your practice. And we'll all have plenty of opportunity because reality just keeps doing its thing. And we're old enough to know that that's true. And we're all going to live and die. And that's not a mistake. It's just the way things are. And the more we're here, I believe, uh, and you'll hear this is going to sound paradoxical, the more amazing the whole thing is. The more amazing the whole thing is, living and dying, both. And I've had enough of my own little bit of experience of death and near-death experience over the last few years that I feel very I feel very confident that there is more for us to learn no matter what happens. And that that feels true to me. What it is, I don't know. I know what happened to me, what I saw, what things revealed themselves to me. That was totally, and here, now you're getting a non-Buddhist Eugene word. That was totally wild, what happened. But, but it was a good wild, and who knows what happens as we keep going. All I, really the piece I feel like I know, the more we're here, that's the thing that's needed, is us to be here. Because who else is going to be here when we're suffering or dying or awakening? Who else is going to do it? <laughs> we're not going to, I'm not going to do it for you. You're not going to do it for me. You can't. That's not how it works. And yet, there is something that may resonate amongst all of us, both with the dukkha and the awakening. Because reality is, as Eugene likes to say, wild. So the last piece I have here um, is really about self, self self-identity, the sense of self, right? And of course we've asked some of these questions in different ways. And the question is, okay, who, who were you at 22? Who, who were you at 31? Who were you at 47? Where is that person now? Even though that person was totally real, is that who's here? Or is there somebody else here now? And who's this person? <laughs> that was a good response. And, and not only that, and they're totally real, and they're not going to be here tomorrow. Not in the same way. And so the whole sense of self, which to clarify, again, in Buddhism, the Buddha never said you have to get rid of your sense of self. 
he pointed at self and the benefits of self and how to use self to discover reality, which includes not self. Right? And again, you're hearing again the paradox of both self and not self is the teaching in Buddhism. And it's something we can keep learning about because you already know something about it. Right? And here, you know, here's the one thing, one simple thing I'll point to about that. I thought I had it in the talk somewhere. Maybe I do. No. Um, Awareness is one of the great ways to point at this, right? Like I said, everybody's aware, right? Everybody got that? We, We did that once already. We're good with that. Are you doing the awareness? If you're doing it, stop doing it. No, I mean it. Really stop that. (laughs) No, stop being aware, everybody. Otherwise, I won't stop talking until you... (laughs) No. So, So what's that? What is that that is happening on its own that we call awareness? And I'm not asking for an answer. I'm asking for you to look at your direct experience because something's here that's not you. That's happening all on its own. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, if you come up with something to show me I'm wrong, I'm totally open to that because I like knowing as well as not knowing. But right now, I don't know what else is happening except Awareness just happens. And it's kind of cool. So I'm going to end with a very simple Buddhist teaching. Very simple. It's the teaching of Bahia. Bahia is one of my loves, Bahia. His name, he was actually in the suttas, he's called Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So you know what kind of gear he wears, right? (laughs) Bahia of the Bark Cloth. He's got the best bark cloth I've seen so far. And and he seeks out the Buddha at some point. And he, and actually he's seeking awakening. And he gets, he gets a download from somewhere basically saying, in the text, it says a deva, a heavenly being comes down and says, Bahia, you're not going to get enlightened this way with what you're doing. And you're not even following the right people to get enlightened. And so Bahia is a sincere practitioner, like we all are. He says, well, who is, where is awakening? How do I, where can I find the truth? And, the, and they point, and they say, oh, there's somebody over here, you know, about, you know, a hundred miles away and blah, blah, blah. Go, go there, find the Buddha. And so Bahia, it said, in, in one night, gets, travels a hundred miles, right? They're talking in mythological time, archetypal time, and because of his devotion and purity of heart. And he goes to the Buddha, and he gets there at, you know, we, we would say at 12 o'clock, in the afternoon, the next day, even though it's a hundred miles. 
And he starts asking the monastics who are around. He said, well, where's the Buddha? I want to talk to him. Where's the Buddha? Finally, they point and they point and he, he runs up to the Buddha and says, um, you know, venerable, I, I wish to receive teachings. And the Buddha says, um, um, oh, sorry, it's time for my lunch. It's, uh, that's not how he said it, but he said, excuse me, but it's time to do alms rounds, right? To go banging. And, and you want to do it by a certain time because you can't eat if you're monastic after a certain time. And Bahia says, oh, please, you know, venerable, please. He asked him a second time. And the Buddha says, no. So how would you feel if you finally run into the Buddha? And then he says, no, not now, young person, man, woman, however you identify. And, uh, and but Bahia's cool. He's very devoted. He asks three times. And that's the charm in Buddhism, at least sometimes. Please don't ask me anything three times. But, <laughs> but, but, um, but he, he asks, and the Buddha says, okay, I'll give you teachings, but I'm going to give you teachings right now. And he says, here's what he says. He says, Bihia, you should train yourself thus, in the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. And the translation goes either way. It could be just or will be merely, right? So in the scene will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed, felt, will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized, in the thought, in the mental realm, it's merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. So it's very simple. Train yourself in the simplicity of direct experience. You're getting my interpretation now, not what the Buddha said. Here's more what the Buddha said to Bahia. He said, when Bahia in the scene will be just what is seen in the herd, will be just what is heard. In the sensed will be just what is sensed. In the cognized will be just what is cognized. Then Bahia, you will not be with that. When Bahia, you are not with that. Then, Bahia, you will not be in that. When, Bahia, you are not, you are not with that, you are not in that. Then, Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. You will be neither here nor there or in between. Just this is the end of suffering. You will be neither here nor there nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. Let's sit for a minute, please. Just sit with the simplicity of whatever is true right now, whatever you're aware of right now, whether it's thought, feeling, sensation, sound, taste, touch, or something indescribable. 
just the simple knowing. period of walking practice and is this person who rings the next bell here who rings the bell for the sitting at nine nobody pardon oh they ring the bell okay so just know you come in a little bit later where we went a little we did a full talk so Come in at 10 after 9 and we'll end the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.